Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and the producer of this series. The rugby season began again last week and to celebrate, this week's podcast stars Clive Woodward, the legendary coach who led England to victory in the 2003 World Cup. Matt Stadlin met him backstage at the How To Academy pre-pandemic to explore his insights into leadership. Clive's new book on the subject, How To Win, is out now. So Clive, I grew up with a father who was successful in what he did and he used to tell me repeatedly that it was about 90% hard work and 10% talent. Is there truth in that? One of my favourite sayings is talent alone is not enough. So um, I, I think uh, that about stacks up for me. I, I think you can take your talent to a whole new level if you really have the right sort of uh, attitude and mindset. So um, the, the figures, I think, vary in different sports, different professions. But I absolutely believe that, you know, everyone's got a certain amount of talent. And it's, it's, it's then what you do that you can take to a whole new, whole new level. Are all talented people winners? Presumably not. No, I don't think so. No, I think the you know, talent comes in various forms. And, um, you know, as I say, it, it's to me, talent gets you into sports teams, gets you into businesses, uh, gets you into jobs, gets you into employment. Um, doesn't mean you have to be a winner to actually just leverage that and be very successful. I think in the, in the sport, it tends to be more about winning. I mean, that's more highlighted. But in the, in the business world and the other worlds, you know, your talent takes you to areas. And sometimes it's not about winning. It's about performance. It's about um, setting certain goals and being successful at those. How hard do you work? I get the impression that you work very hard. Oh, I've always been very lucky. I, I can I can honestly say I can't recall ever ever getting up and thinking I'm going to work today. I've just been really lucky what what I've done, uh, and that includes when I was working with with Xerox and running my own leasing and finance company, and obviously especially in sport. But you know, I just do what I do. Um, you know, my whole world, family, all kind of links in. in into this they're totally engaged in, in what I actually do but you know one of our favorite sayings is work hard play hard you know I think I work hard but I have a lot of fun I play hard as well you know we have a great life based on what I actually do winning is also about how you work though isn't it yeah I think um I kind of had two business careers one was with Xerox a big the big multinational then I run my own small leasing and finance company what that really taught me was not to waste time when you're kind of self-employed running your own business, you, you honestly don't waste time. You don't go to meetings that aren't going to be totally productive or you think you're going to get something something out of. So I think when you run your own small company, you really value time because every minute counts. And, you know, because you're trying to uh, um, create a new, a successful business and time, time management is absolutely key. And, you know, I've kind of learned not to kind of waste too much time. And that's carried me into, into my sporting career as well, where, you know, if I, you know, obviously you have meetings, but I won't go to meetings unless I really think I should be there and I'm going to get something out of it. And I'm, I'm very careful with my time because it's, 
it's valuable and time is time is value and if you if you're trying to be successful or win as you put it um, you want to make the most of every every minute in the day. You've mentioned already now careers outside of sport. Do you think the skills involved in winning in sport are fairly easily transferable? Or do you think you brought something else to the party that made you specifically a winner in different areas of your life? I, I think, you know, looking looking back, I, I just came from the amateur era. I mean, my sport was rugby union. Um, I loved playing football. I loved playing all sports. I was good at football, but then I ended up playing rugby about 14, 15. Became good at rugby and ended up playing for England and, and, the, and the Lions. But it was an amateur game. You didn't get paid a penny. In fact, England were the great amateurs. Uh, and there's a lot of strength in that because you, at the same time as um, playing uh, an amateur sport, even at the very top level, you're developing your, your business careers. You know, and when I played for England, I was playing with you know, doctors, architects, plumbers, bricklayers, scaffolders. It was fantastic looking back. The culture and the diverse people you were actually playing with was a real strength of the the game. You know, and I I went to Loughborough University, got my degree in sports science and a qualified teacher, but I never went into teaching. I then went into the kind of Xerox world and the, fi- the finance world within Xerox. And that was, looking back, you know, really beneficial, not so much as a player, because I promise you I'd have given anything to be a professional rugby player. I'd have loved to have played professionally where in that small window of your life, you can really take it seriously, especially in terms of the, the training, the fitness. You, know, you see players now and you say, well, that, that would have been me in terms of just their size and speed. And we didn't train a great deal, you know, because we couldn't. We were working all day and we just trained a couple of times a, a week at night. So I'd have loved to love to have been a professional player. I think what it really helped me, um, my kind of business career, especially running my own small companies, was the coaching because... You know, when I took over the England rugby team, it was no different than a small business. You were you were trying to deliver results for a set of people. Uh, it wasn't about you; it was about how you how you think and how you work and how you apply your skills, and how, especially on the leadership and management side. So I think um, me sort of going on to to coach England and having you know a certain amount of success, the, the business side really helped me. Yes, I had the talent to play rugby. I knew rugby inside out and back to front as a player, but it's then how you coach, how you teach it, but most importantly, how you handle people. And, um, you know, most of the top coaches now um, in football and rugby, I'd say, are top people managers. You're running, you're running a small business. Do you think you can learn to be a winner? Do you think you can learn a winning mentality? I mean, presumably, to some extent, you do think that because you've written this book, How to Win. Or, or do you think, truthfully, most winners are born winners? No, I don't think anyone's born winner. I, I don't agree with that. I think it's something you... You can actually work hard at. You can still in yourself. At the end of the day, it is about hard work. It's about really putting in the hours, but working, as you previously said, working effectively and doing the right things and understanding why you're doing things. Isn't you can throw enough you know stuff at the wall and some of it will stick. But at the end of the day, you've got to be doing the right things, and that's what I've tried to write in the book. I've taken through my whole kind of experience, what I've learned, you know, in business and sport, that what actually gets you out the other, the other side. So yeah, it is about hard work. It is about putting the hours in. But there's no point doing that unless you doing the right things effectively and I've tried to really document that and number one thing is this is what I call relentless learning I think any person who I'd classify as a winner is a relentless learner you never ever stop learning the moment you stop learning or what I call being a sponge you know in terms of for knowledge and information you're going to come second and winners undoubtedly are always always learning and innovating of course well it's the same thing I think if you're learning you're going to you're going to come across more thoughts and ideas I mean I do a certain amount of Kind of, I've always um, and I've always enjoyed doing this. Kind of working in the corporate world, doing business speeches, 
you're doing seminar, seminars and going to speak to you know, some big corporations and you know, I'm quite proud of that. What I love doing is actually getting there early and sitting in the back of the room and listening to other people. And you know, I sat in the back of, of some amazing, listening to amazing speakers. And people just sort of question that, why do you want to do that? You know, most, most people just tap up, do your speech and off you go. I want to spend the whole day there. I want to just sit in the back of the room with a bit of paper and a coffee and listen to other people speak. And I learn so much and pick up so many thoughts and ideas that you may call innovation. That's where it comes from. You just think and you actually, crikey, that's a good idea. And you could be listening to it a guy talking about the pharmaceutical industry or the oil industry, but you just learn from other, other people all, all the time. It's, I always amazes me why people are amazed I want to do that. I still enjoy it today. I love going to listen to other people speak on any subject because, you know, a bit of paper, a cup of coffee, you'll always think of something as you listen to the guy speaking. Importing ideas and, and ways of doing things and mentalities and mindsets from worlds outside rugby if you're doing rugby because if you're just surrounding yourself by people who think similarly by other rugby players by other rugby coaches you lose something right um yeah yes we got to get to get the balance right i mean i i still when i when i was coaching england or coaching rugby i'm surrounded 90 percent of the time by rugby people so you 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 learn from them you learn from everybody but it, what, what i'm saying is you can learn yes from sport that's that's i think fairly common sense that can you learn from other other people especially successful people but also you can learn from just people who are successful. Go and listen to anybody who's successful in any world, whether it's the arts, the music or business. Um, something will, you'll, you'll learn something if you really are lucky enough to get behind the scenes and trying to find out what makes them tick and you can apply them both. So I think winning and being successful are all kind of linked together doesn't matter what you actually do. I think you say in the book that there's no such thing as a dumb idea. You wanted to foster an environment where people felt free to put forward ideas because otherwise it, it would become in a way too one-dimensional you want if, if someone came up with a, a crazy idea and you decided to discard it at least they were sort of pushing the boundaries challenging the mindset trying to drive things forward and then the next idea might be a, a, a genius idea I just it was, it was, it's a good phrase and I like it you know no such thing as a dumb idea all, all, all I'm saying there is if we're having meetings I want people really engaged and I want them engaged in the meetings, but also I want them engaged when they're not in the meetings. I want them engaged 24-7, 365. If we're being serious, if we're trying to become the number one rugby team in the world, you know, beat the All Blacks, South Africans, Australians, our, our big enemies, you know, the ideas are not necessarily going to come from the top table, either myself or my coaching team. You know, I still, still regard myself as a player. And if you're a player, you know, you're at the front line. You know, you're seeing it, you're feeling it, you're hearing it. So if you've got an idea of something, you know, if if... if where, where we're going to really fall out if, if you're kind of worried about standing up or saying it because you feel you may get embarrassed through me or the rest of the teammates may you know barrack you or the banter comes in we, we are going to fall out you know and, and that's to let me decide whether it's a good idea or a bad idea and sometimes you know you can have a meeting of 10 people and nine may think this way but it's the one person who says no I think this that's the person I want to listen to because they could be right and it's not a case of being, you know, wacky about this. It's just you're spotting them. And you know, I almost pride myself on now, you know, in the various things I do now. And, and I think I learned to do this with the rugby team. I almost pride myself on not being good at diet ideas. What I think I do pride myself on listening and going, that's a good idea. And then if it's a really good idea, what I pride myself on making sure it's put in place. That's your job as the actual leader. So it's all about, you know, really empowering your, your people. you still got the ultimate say. If you're the leader of the team, I can still go yes or no. But it's just listening and understanding these ideas could come from the person who's been in your business a day, the person who's been in your rugby team for five minutes, an 18-year-old. Do not think the good ideas are going to come from 
the people at the top table, the audience experience. In this case, of listening and and not getting too carried away with this, but it, it's uh, it's it's a it's a big skill and big trait to listen and actually go actually that could could work. So when you were coaching England, there was an obvious hierarchy. You were certainly the boss. There was respect there, but it was, as you say, also a collaborative approach. It was trying to blend those two things. It wasn't one or the other. No, it's totally. Because also when you're coaching the rugby team, you know, you've got players coming from 12 different clubs. So they're coming from 12 different businesses, 12 different coaches, 12 different sets of ideas, 12 different ways of doing things. It's quite challenging to actually get them into one now because we've got to play the England way, not the Leicester way, Northampton or Watts way. So that takes some time. It did take some time to actually get everybody on the same page and to actually work out what we're going to actually do. Because I was absolutely determined, yes, I was going to learn from these clubs, but also I wanted to, England to play a way that we'd never done before, the way that excite the players, but most important, the way that could be our major competitors, which I saw as the Southern Hemisphere. I saw the enemy as the All Blacks, South Africa and Australia. Still do. They're still, you know, I see the Northern Hemisphere teams as our friends, including France, who are, you know, who are a really good side. But the real enemy was the Southern Hemisphere, and, it's, and to me, they still are. You see, the recent World Cup, you know, South Africa won the World Cup. You know, only one team has ever won the World Cup outside the Southern Hemisphere. So they're the team to beat. But can we outthink them? Can we can we really get them worried about what we're actually doing? I think we did that in 2003. There's no doubt the rest of the world was looking at us and going, cranky, what they're doing now. But we had a great group of players. I mean, can never speak you know, loud enough about Delalio and Johnson, all these guys. But they, they were amazing, talented. But when you saw them in the team room, and it all kicked off at times, which it did, their passion for what we were doing. Because they wanted, they wanted to win. When you say kicked off, were they fighting each other? Oh, no, no, no fighting. No, there was no blood. Uh, there was a few words were said. But again, we had that all, all covered. We had strict teamship rules. In this room, um, you know, I want to say what I want to say. I expect you to say what you want to say. No such thing as a dumb idea. I want you to question each other. And sometimes it got a little heated, which is fine. But by the time we walk out the door, we walk out the door holding hands. And that, that, that was it. You mentioned earlier that if someone were to do something, that you would then fall out. Now, when we watch you as a pundit on the telly, we find you a very attractive person, very charismatic. We like listening to you. But meeting you in person, maybe there shouldn't be a but, you're, you're quite a big guy. I mean, I'm six foot three and 15 stone, and I certainly wouldn't mess with you. So what were you actually like in that environment? How did you establish your authority to create a winning environment? Did you fall out with people? Could you be intimidating? How ruthless were you capable of no, being? No, I never thought I was intimidating. I would never, I'm crikey. I, I would never want to intimidate anybody. What I was trying to encourage people is to speak their mind. You know, I wanted, I wanted thoughts. You know, everyone knew. I think they're clear. I was obviously in charge of this team. I just knew we had some really, you know, amazing players, but some very bright players, really bright players. And I wanted them to start to think about it. And I don't think, I like to think what we delivered, that they've never been spoken to like the way I was speaking to them when we when we started to de- develop this whole program that I really did want to listen to their views. And I wanted them to go away and think and study and use software and data and really start thinking about the game for the first time. That the old school was, I'm, I'm your coach, this is what we're going to do. Well, that's one way, and that can work. But the way I was trying to deliver it was I was trying to take it to a whole new level where I want these guys really thinking about the game. And I think that had a massive effect actually during the game. If they got used to this, then the day I'm not on the pitch during the game, I'm in the, I'm in the, the, on, the on the touchline or in the stands. And, you know, when you're in the, in the real pressure situations, you need players who really understand what's been going on, what we're trying to do, what they're doing, and make decisions on the, on the hoof. And that sounds easy, but it's so difficult to do. You need special players to be able to do that. And you need, and you need a whole communication chain to be able to deliver that. And that's what I think we, we got to. And, um, you know, I was really confident, you know, by the end that that team would take, would this way, take a very, very good team to beat us or we have to play really badly. 
I, I can still name every player in that starting 15. I can probably name the substitutes that came on in the World Cup final. What you managed to do, uh, amongst many other things, was blend a different sort of player with a with another player. So you had the steady, devoted players like Johnny Wilkinson, who were absolutely reliable in doing what they did. And then you had, I'm sure, also hardworking, but maverick genius players like Jason Robinson. You were able to incorporate a whole different bunch of players and get them to play as one team. I just have a question for you from another sport, because one of the things you've been able to do is move your, your skill set from one sport to another bit of football and, of course, the Olympics, which we'll touch on. But in cricket... Kevin Peterson was, a, I think, one of the greatest British sportsmen in history. And yet in the end, the England setup couldn't accommodate him. And I wonder whether you feel that they should have done and whether you think that you would have been able to had he been a rugby player. Oh, listen, um, I'm very clear about this. I'm always going to pick the most talented player without any shadow of doubt. I want in my team, I want to look around the room, I'm going to pick the most talented player. So am I going to pick Kevin Peterson? Absolutely. Absolutely, without any shadow of a doubt. But then the, the buck comes in. I'm going to pick Peterson, but Peterson uh, has got to understand how we're going to work. You know, no such thing as a dumb idea. I want this guy totally and utterly engaged in the team. And almost the bigger the star, the bigger the maverick, which I love, the more I need them to be totally engaged in the actual team. And I'm going to engage them more than anybody else. I'm not going to hide from these players just because they're the superstars. And I did, it with every, I did that with every single player. It's back to talent alone is I'm not enough. You know, you're a talented player. And I'd be saying to, to Peterson, be very clear, my job is to make you a better player. I'm going to make you a better player. Forget all the team stuff. Let me handle that. I'm going to make you the best player, batsman in, in the world. But it's got to be a two-way thing. For me to do this, you've got to deliver back to me. When I say a two-way thing, you know, to be a professional sportsman, to win the World Cup in any sport or get to your top in cricket, you know, you've, you've got to kind of um, 24-7, 365 in terms of the way you behave, the, the way you train, because they're only with you for a short period of days. What they do outside of that that makes them champions. And that's what we did. So by the end of the, you know, by the time I'd sort of started, by the time we hit the World Cup especially, I trusted every single one of them. You know, we had simple things like, you know, when you, had, when you went to a restaurant, never, ever order off the, the menu. You order to just say, I want this, this and this. And if the chef won't do that, you're in the wrong wrong restaurant. And I've never been to a restaurant yet where I said, with these elite athletes, and we, we say we ordered some simple stuff, chicken and rice and pasta, simple stuff. And and I want them doing that. So I need Kevin Peterson to do that. I know Kevin Peterson reasonably well. Would you have done that? Absolutely. And I don't think, I've never had a problem with a player. You kind of throw them and say, I'm going to make you a better player. And every player wants to be better, no matter how good you are. Can I make Johnny Wilkinson, Martin Johnson, David Beckham, Kevin Peterson a better player? Yes, that's your job as a coach. I'm going to make you better. But it's got to be a two-way thing because... They, they, they've got to live this 24-7. They want to be the best in the world. This takes a lot, a lot of input. And I found that's the way to do it. But I'll always pick on, pick on talent. doesn't matter what their reputation is, I'll be confident they'll work with me. And if they don't, by the way, they'll have to go. There's no, there's a way that they have to go like anyone else. So if, if Peterson wasn't to actually, and this is not me being, this is the opposite. This is actually me wanting him totally and utterly engaged. Now he's got the feeling looking at the various films and books that we've written all that episode with Peterson, that he, he just seemed to be let loose too much. And I think he didn't, he didn't like that. Peterson's a guy you want to put your arm around. But would I want him in my team? Absolutely. Because I'm with you. I think he's one of the best, definitely one of the best cricketers we've ever, ever had. He's one of the best sportsmen we've ever had. Time away from 
your direct control, as it were, is a, is a key part of the day in a sporting week. So social media falls into that category. And, and you were very clear, I think, ahead of the, the London 2012 Games. Your director of sport for the British Olympic Association delivered a fantastic set of results. It was a, a ha- well, probably the last time we were happy as a country, and you were partly responsible for that. And one of the things that you did there was to develop a social media strategy because you could see the power of that distraction how it could derail the whole operation something said rogue by someone in one sport could have a knock-on effect in the cycling if it was said by a a swimmer how do you advise these days winning teams whether in business or in sport to handle the social media use of their workforce well social media is just one one of many topics where you you're just trying to create your the culture of the team and all you're trying to do, we've got this thing called social media. What is acceptable, what is not acceptable? And it's not a case of just giving out a bit of paper and saying, right, this is, these are the rules, yes, do's and don'ts. You've got to engage the athletes because they, they again, a bit like you know, what I described before, no such thing as a dumb idea. I want to know what your take on this social media thing. What are we going to do as a team? And then we started to really have a lot of dialogue with the, all the coaches from the various teams, and most importantly, the athletes. We ended up with just about, um, I think it was six points of do's, six points of don'ts. But every single one of them, before we issued them, is every athlete okay with this? And this was quite a lot of work because we're dealing with 26 sports, 26 performance directors, you know, uh, very astute people, people like Dave Brailsford, you know. Big personality. Yeah, big personality. But they got this. Because what I was trying to point, you you said it there, what, you know, if you've got Bradley Wiggins having breakfast one morning in, in, the, in the dining room, what you don't want is someone from another sport, you know, taking a video of Bradley. This is brought to Brad's having breakfast and posting it. That's going to drive you nuts. And when you're trying to win by the finest margins of that, and so when you explain to everyone, this is what we're doing, it, everyone got it. And the athletes were brilliant. And I have to say, you know, the, the athletes are really sort of, I spoke to, you know, these were, these were superstars. These are guys who've done lots of Olympic games. You know, Ben Ainsley, Rebecca Adlington, you know, Chris Hoy, Wiggins. You know, and but what I found was no one actually really spoke to them before. The first time, they've all been to three or four Olympic Games. They saw all the problems that can happen. And the social media was quite new. I think I'm right in saying the first t- uh, tweet came out in 2007 or 2008. So by London 2012 coming, it's only around three or four years. This was new. We didn't have this in 2003. So I had to learn this as well. But all I knew, this thing, I love with mobile phone, is a wonderful device if used correctly, but it's a lethal weapon if not used correctly. So we went big on social media. We wanted people to use social media, but just basically say, don't do what you normally do. But here's just some simple do's and don'ts that you've all agreed to. And by the way, if you do anything that's not on here, you're not letting me down, you're letting Wiggins down, you're letting Chris Hoy down, Rebecca Adlington, you know, Pendleton. These are people you're letting down. So it's your team rules. A lot of hard work went into that, but I think that was one of the reasons. I mean, it was amazing to be part of. And, you know, on the field of play, we were magnificent, you know, to, I think, to win... 29 gold medals for country our side. But what was equally for me was the way we operate off the field of play because everything was on the back page news. There was nothing, there was no front page stories at all. And underpinning this is the word respect, which is an important word in the book. And you had observed in Beijing the way that some British athletes had left their rooms. And that felt to you, I think, disrespectful. And you changed that mentality. Yeah, you went to the Olympics in Beijing in 2008. And, you know, I'd been in the role. Um, just under two years and you I mean I, I love all sport and I love Olympic Games and I was in many ways 2008 a fan you know you, you're looking from the outside I remember you know watching Olympic Games on the TV growing up and as a, as a you know as, a, as, a, as you as you grow into a, the coaching world so I just used to love watch them and I just thought it would be great 
So when you get to Beijing with all these amazing athletes, you suddenly, it was great, but suddenly you realize that behind the scenes wasn't that great. There was a lot of sort of um, yeah, things that people were falling out over because there was no, none of these what I call teamship rules, nothing being put in place with a team working together. There were literally 26 silos all doing their best, trying to win medals and all this stuff. But there was lots of fallouts over silly stuff and some of the standards weren't, weren't good, you know, the way they treated their rooms. And it had to, had to change. And it was a real outlet for me and a real shock because, you know, whilst I love being in Beijing and we did pretty well, again, because the cycling team, you know, did, I think uh, they won eight gold medals out of 19. Yeah, overall, the, the behavior of the team behind the, the, the amazing pictures on TV wasn't that good. And that's, I thought, okay, well, I've experienced it now. Now I've got four years to try and put this in place for Team, team GB 2012, which, which we did. And they, were, and they were great. And we had a great Olympic Games. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. There have been only three coaches in the history of English sport to have won big, what I would call big men World Cups. There's you, Sir Alf Ramsey, and then also Trevor Bayliss this summer. And I just wonder whether there was a tiny or deeply competitive man. I think you're mates with Eddie Jones, but you were also old adversaries. You beat him in the World Cup final in 2003. So we're mates. We're kind of, uh, I always back him when I can. Right. I respect him as a coach. Don't know him that well. Uh, I like I like him as a coach. But you're on good terms. Oh yeah, great yeah, good yeah, terms. Yeah, yeah. So when England were playing South Africa and being thrashed, unfortunately in Japan, a week after having put on probably the best England rugby performance since the World Cup final that you presided over all those years ago, was there a tiny bit of you, just a tiny bit of Clive Woodward, that was pleased that you were still? the only England rugby coach to have won a World Cup. If you're being absolutely honest. I've been though. absolutely honest. No, there wasn't. I was gutted for them, especially for him. I was gutted for the players, especially when you when you get to know these. I don't know these players that well, but I obviously meet them, shake their hands. And I was gutted for them. To see them after the game, was was I was crestfallen. And yeah, it was the opposite. You know, you win a World Cup. I want Eddie Jones to join the club, to join the party. I want to be able to shake hands with Eddie Jones, who's also won a World Cup. And I want to shake hands with Fowler and Otojo, who's also won the Cup. And we're all we're all the same. All the players felt that as well. It wasn't a case of this is our club. You know, we want England to win. And uh, and it, it was. I'm still pretty, you know, gutted now, to be honest, because... As a fan? Yeah, just as a, as a fan, as a coach, and knowing what they're going through. You know, I was at a do the night. I met Carl Sinclair. You know, the guy who got carried off after a couple of minutes, and we just got a hug, really. And he just—he's he's absolutely in bits. And he and just this will take some getting over, because I, you know, it's great sitting here talking, having won the World Cup in two thousand three. You know, we got beaten ninety nine. We lost in the quarterfinals. It's horrendous, and it does affect you. And I still remember that far more vividly than winning in two thousand and three. And and I think the longer this goes on, the more these players will get really more and more annoyed about they missed the biggest chance of life and you you can't change that but when you're there because you've been there and you've been in their seats you absolutely want them to win and um, it was just so disappointing that they didn't really fire a shot in the end you can't change it but you can learn and I was very heartened by Atoje's response to defeat I think he came up with a Nigerian proverb something about the ram when the ram goes backwards it's not a retreat it's to sort of regather his energy or whatever you certainly have 
learn from failure. You failed in 1999 when Yanni de Beer kicked you to bits in the quarter to fi- quarterfinal. You'd said, judge me on the World Cup. I didn't say that. Oh, did you not say it? No, you well, guys. If, if all you the, guys, the press claimed you said it. <laughs> you guys said that. Don't lump me together with them, although it I have was, just said it myself. It was it was a quote in his uh, judgment on the World Cup. You never said those words? I never said those okay. words. No. And I spoke to the press about it, and they just, it was in the headline in one of the papers, and um, someone asked me about the World Cup, and I said, well, everyone gets judged at the World Cup. Of course you'd be judged at the World Cup. I didn't say judge me at the World Cup. Every coach would get judged at the World Cup. But you would have judged yourself, and, and it would have been bitterly disappointing, as you just described, and yet you came back, and four years later, you won the World Cup. You, you went to Beijing. Beijing was not a disaster in the way that 99 Rugby World Cup had been by any means, but you used that as a sort of springboard, I imagine, to go on and succeed in London 2012. So learning from mistakes, learning from things that don't go so well is crucial, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely crucial. I, you know, I did, I've never met anybody who's, I would say, been successful. It's had this perfect career where the the, the, the the kind of the bar graph goes in a nice horizontal version. That doesn't happen. That's not the real world. You know, no, I've known no one who's not, not had setbacks. And it's how you handle those setbacks. You hate them at the time. You can't plan for it. You, you know, it's, it's horrible. But you had them on the way. Um, and I often, you know, when I interview people now, look at their CVs, I'm more interested uh, where, where they failed as opposed to, you know, most CVs are full of all the good stuff. I said, well, okay, put that aside. Show me where you failed. What happened here? What happened? Here? That's when you learn how people bounce back and how they how strong they really are. But what you did, Clive, so we look at high, we talked about hierarchy already, but what you made absolutely clear after 99 was it had to be done your way. So you're a collaborative coach in, in, in many ways, as you've described, but you needed to be able to do that four-year cycle, the Clive Woodward method. Yeah, I think it was a case of, you know, I got the job um, two years before the World Cup in 97, I had two years at this, and you, you're really just flying by the seat of your pants and you're looking back now I didn't realise at the time I was kind of walking on eggshells a bit I was trying to keep too many people happy especially for few of the players who really weren't good enough to be in the team I was trying to get everyone happy I was trying to treat the RFU people happy the media happy and looking back now that wasn't the way that wasn't the way and we kind of you know we, did we fail dramatically probably yes but if you look back there was some reasons for that but you don't make excuses you got you got beat fair and square we never won that game against the African in the quarterfinals and then you just go home and you got to grieve. And I literally went to bed for three or four days, not because I was hiding, I just needed to just get this out of my system. And I got up one day and went back in, met with the chief executive, said, oh, I want to do this, I want to do on camera for four years, because all the press are after you, everyone wants to hang you, because you've just lost these, these games, although you've only been there a couple of years. So I got, you know, they renewed my contract, which was great, which I'll always be grateful to uh, Francis Brown, the chief executive, and Frank Cotton, who was a board member. They were the two main people who got me reappointed. Also, I was pleased with the players, because so many players stood up for me and said, this is the right guy. We'd only been professional two two years. So that was a big, and it was, okay, you know, I got out of jail here, survived here, and I've got four more years of this. And it wasn't a case of um, doing much different, but just say, right, I'm just now going to, really, I'm going to make this happen my way. And if I've got to fall out with people on the way, which, which I did with one or two people, so be it. I want to look at some of the words that you use in the book, because one of the things I'm curious about, having got that control that you needed in the build-up to 2003, is how you then coached how you led did, did you did you sort of lead by a manual that you wrote yourself I mean you were sticking posters on the wall of the opposition coaches for example but there there are words like warriors and learning we've talked about fast tracking motivation of course I think dealing with dealing with nerves fear how do you how do you how do you deal with fear how do you cope with that then the code of conduct discipline of course 
the, the idea of getting rid of excuses and not want, not wanting to have an if only culture avoiding the risk of silo i mean there are so many watchwords and so many ways of doing things and not doing things that you spell out in the book were you conscious of all that as you were leading as you were coaching i was conscious that the first two years was a huge learning thing for me because don't forget you know the game gone professional i was the first full-time professional coach uh, prior to that you know i was coaching at london irish and bath you know as amateur so suddenly it's full-time that was a big difference the first two years a massive step change we were behind the Southern Hemisphere by a long way. We were by a year behind them. So really, what happened in 99 was pretty predictable. But I learned pretty quick in those, in those, in those two years. And all those words you just called out, there, there was me just throwing all my experience as a player from working in Xerox, my own business, the first two years of being the coach. It, was, it wasn't a case of starting again. It was a case of, okay, we are, we are where we are now. But I'd, I've learned all these things. But we're now going to absolutely do it this this way and we kind of broke the game down got the players really really involved in it and everything and we and I think that the record between World Cups is amazing I think we well, I think I know we played 41 sorry we played 51 games and lost four I mean it's probably the best win loss percentage of any sports teams at that level in any sport with like 93% win record between World Cups so we had amazing success it, it, it's, it's so much easier when you're actually doing all this and you're winning 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 you know, by the time we arrived at the World Cup in 2003, we're number one ranked team in the world in favourites. You've beaten New Zealand in New Zealand yeah, with 13 we'd, men. We'd won 14 games in a row against the Hemisphere home and away. So it was unheralded. But it wasn't just through, 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 through luck. It was a whole process that put in place. And again, the most important people to play looking at is, is the guys in the, in the team room. The players have got to buy into this. They've got to be, you know, really buy into this. No such thing as a dumb idea. Really start to get annoyed with each other if, if we've not done what we said we're going to do. And, you know, take responsibility themselves, which they did. Like I said, I can never speak high enough of, especially Martin Johnson, just to really lead, but take, that's what I talked about with Kevin Peterson before, take real responsibility. My job is to make you a better player. Who is the most important member of that World Cup winning team? And it can be a player or a coach, including yourself. And you're not allowed to be modest here. <laughs> I'm always modest. It certainly wasn't me. In terms, in terms of players, I mean, they were amazing. I can talk, the, the one player who I think made the biggest difference was Jason Robinson because he came in from another sport um, and I think every single player would say, and I had superstars, Johnny Wilkins is a complete legend, the superstar, so is Johnson, Delario, all of them. But the one guy when he came in and I'd sort of gone out of the way to get this guy, you know, really sort of put my neck on the line to bring him over. Uh, when Jason Robinson arrived in the team, literally straight away from what he did on the training pitch, but just in the team rooms, the way he operated, he was so, so professional. And you can see everyone, including me, looking at him going, because well, he's come from rugby league, professional sport. They've been professional a lot longer than us. He suddenly took the thing to a whole new level. Although you also asked Josh Lucy to show off his torso when you first saw him after a huge defeat because he had such a perfect body. You wanted everyone else to aspire to that sort of level of fitness. I think I wanted to aspire to that, really. That was <laughs> Clive, um, you've got to go on stage quite soon. So I wanted some quick fire answers. Okay, teacup. That was an absolutely central phrase in the success of that team. And it's about thinking clearly under, under no, pressure. It's not, no, it's not. Thinking correctly. There you so go. Dim, big difference between clearly and correctly. <laughs> thinking, it's correct. Any, correctly. Anyone can think clearly. It's whether you think correctly. Okay, well, I'm thinking both decision. not clearly and not correctly. Correctly. Well, you're smiling at least. Correctly. I'd be out of the team by now. No, please. you'd be gone. <laughs> I'd be long gone. But just, just quickly on this point of pressure. Pressure and mental health go together of course were you aware as the England coach and also in charge of the, our Olympic method of 
the mental health of the people who were, as it were, representing you or representing their country, but under your guidance? And do you think we've got a, a, the, the right balance in professional sport between getting people to cope with pressure, but also looking after their mental health at the same time? I think um, pressure is a good word. You can't get away from it. You know, if you're going to operate at that level, the pressure is going to be there. But I think what I, what I didn't stress enough in the book was um, my wife had a huge role to play in this in terms of... Uh, Jane's role was to work with all the wives, girlfriends, parents, get to know them, kids. And if you speak to any of the players, I think they would go, yeah, she was amazing. And someone said to me, she was almost like she was the HR side of the, of the business. And because she wasn't kind of a, on the payroll, she, she was amazing. We found out so much stuff that was going on. And when you're working with so many players, you see players at their absolute strongest. You see them at the weakest. And we had some... Um, you know, some real challenging times. You know, with 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 deaths within their family, their parents were grim. Lost his baby. All sorts of stuff happens. Jane was amazing, absolutely amazing, because she knew all this. She saw them behind the scenes. She did so much that at the time I knew what she's doing, but it's only looking back I realised how good she was. And what actually happened there? So you 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 saw all this. So the, so let's call it the the kind of the 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 mental health side of things. Things were kind of highlighted before we before they became a big issue, which we try to get involved in and really help. And it's 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 not it's it's, you know, it's fundamentally just trying to be there for people when stuff's happening. I remember saying to the players, most of the players, in fact all the players would at some stage come to a house to have dinner with me and meet with Jane and my, my family and kids. I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted them to know where I was, where I lived. And I said to them all afterwards, you know, um, at any stage, if you've got any real problems with me, what I'm doing with you, you must come and see me. And you know where I live, I'm not here to hide. Uh, I promise you over the sort of seven, eight years of coaching England, I'd have had four players actually rang me, came to see me. And every single one of us, nothing to do with playing rugby. There was stuff on, on the outside that they needed some help, help with. And that was fantastic. So things like that, I think that, and I don't see other coaches ever have actually done that. The pressure during the game, that's me. That's something you can totally coach, you can prepare for. And that's something that I do. But I think the pressure outside the game which is there, sometimes I don't think we, we give enough stall to and how we handle it. And uh, so Jane did an amazing job for me. And your wife is presumably very important to you as well. As, do you have a support structure? Do you have someone other than your wife who you call up if you if you need a friend? Have you ever, it's a personal question, you don't have to answer it, of course. And I've struggled with my mental health at times, including recently. Have you ever struggled with yours? Are you sort of, do you have, are you literate in that way? And that's not meant to be a patronising or offensive question. No, do you think, understand what it is for yourself yeah, in your I, own life? I think I do understand it. And, and to be honest, no, I've never called anybody, but I speak, you know, to the wife, my children, my children have kind of, we, I made a big thing, as I said, yeah, this wasn't kind of going to work and coming out. This was what we did. This is what our family does. This is what I do. At times, being, being a rugby coach is the best job in the world, as long as you win. If you don't win, it can have its moments. And uh, and you just got to get your, your, your kids and your family involved in it. So no, my standing board's always been Jane. It always has been, always will be. And she's, she's been amazing. And uh, hopefully I'm the same with her as well. But she's been really important to having that balance and that standing board. But I've never actually rang anybody. And not because I don't want to, but I never thought I needed to. But I think you do need at least one person in your life where you really can, who knows what's going on, you know, not just on the field of play, but off the field of play. So very briefly, how do you pick yourself up from a disappointment like the 2005 Lions? I mean, you were up against an absolutely superb team and Dan Carter and his pomp, you were playing away to New Zealand. And that would have been presumably, at least briefly, quite crushing for you. You'd come off the high of the World Cup. 
you'd had the chance to prepare, which played to your strengths because you, you're brilliant as a strategist and you get you, you get involved with the detail. How do you pick yourself up from that? Uh, listen, it, it's it all it's all part of the job. It, it was totally crushing, you know, because you'd just been a World Cup winning coach and you're getting all the accolades and all that sort of stuff. Then you go to New Zealand and you get well beat. I think the end, the, the way you handle it, again, it's a bit like a Richard which went home, went to bed for a few days, grieved. You got to grieve. It's like it's like it's like yeah, it's like mourning. Um, but I, I think this handling, winning or losing, if if deep down you know you've done everything humanly possible to win, you'll handle it. If I thought I'd cut a corner, not done the right thing, I threw the kitchen sink at that line suit. Absolutely threw the kitchen you got sink. Got Alistair Campbell in to head up the communication. Did, did everything I thought was was right. Did I regret Alistair Campbell? No, he was brilliant. To be brutally honest, the players still uh, deal with him now. So as long as you do everything humanly possible to win, when you lose, which you're going to lose, I say. You, you try and find me somebody who's, who's won everything, never failed. I'll find you someone who's not that successful. So we've all failed at stuff, business and sport. It's how you handle that. But as long as you know you've done everything humanly possible, what will actually eat you up if you know you've taken some shortcuts and not actually done your job properly? And then if you lose, that could cause you some problems. Two final questions. Do you see yourself as Clive Woodward, the World Cup winner? No, no I see myself <laughs> as Clive Woodward, um, you know, father, husband, and someone who, who's pretty lucky in what, everything I've done. And very finally, given that we haven't had a chance to go through all the different ingredients to a winning recipe, so many of which, of course, are in the book, and it's a very good read, what, in, in condensed form, is your recipe for winning? The recipe for winning is, is it doesn't matter if it's sport or business, but you're, you're trying to deliver your objective through, through the people. It's always about people. And you've got your people in the room and you've got to deliver success through that team of people. If, you, if you're doing a team sport like I'm involved in, and that's it. And you've got to get those people totally not engaged. In, and I mean every single person in your team from if in the sporting environment, from the doctor to the secretary to the prop forward, everybody has got to have the mindset, I'm going to be the best in the world at what I do. And my job is to try and make that happen in terms of them being in individually the best that they can. And if you can get every single person really, really... Um, uh, trying to improve themselves, continual learning, relentless learning, as I call it, then you've got half, half a chance. And when you get to that position where you actually know, you look around the changing room or your business, it's a really exciting place to be because you know the opposition, they're going to have to play really well to beat you. And that's what we delivered in 2003. Would you have won 2019 if you'd been the coach? Oh, I have no clue. Depends who I picked. So Clive Woodward, I've wanted to interview since I started being an interviewer many years ago. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. This week's podcast starred Clive Woodward and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Fast Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. We are back next week, but in the meantime, visit us at howtoacademy.com and check out the incredible programme of live streams we have lined up for the autumn. Guests include Malcolm Gladwell, Elizabeth Gilbert, John Cleese, Nick Offerman, and many more. Thanks for listening.